your Bibles, if you would please, to John chapter 19, the Gospel of John chapter 19. We are now about a year and a half into our study of the Gospel of John. We're scheduled to end this series sometime during the month of August. That's my plan right now. It's been a good study, and now we're at the time of the cross, and we've been looking at the last hours of Jesus' life and the climax of what was really a relatively short life. Most people wouldn't think that the high point of their lives would be the day that they would die. And if we did think that way, we would probably live a pretty miserable existence if we thought the highest place that I'm going to achieve in life is the day that I die. But for Jesus, the greatest thing that he would accomplish in life was that. It was that Jesus came to die. And we thank the Lord that he did. And he came because that was his true mission in life, to come here and to die. And his life was certainly necessary. But the life of Jesus only has meaning for us when we consider that he had to die. I recently heard a a preacher say that we're not saved by the life of Christ. We're saved by his death. And he received a lot of amens for that statement. And in many ways, that's true. Uh, It is true that we are saved by the death of Christ. But it's also true that we're saved by the life of Christ. Because during his life, he came to this, this world and he lived a perfect life. Life. He kept all of God's laws perfectly. And he was able to transfer to us the goodness, the righteousness and holiness that he earned in this life. And we receive that when we take him as our savior. But it is true that Jesus' life would not have meant anything to us at all if he had not died. Because in that death, the Bible teaches us that he bore the penalty for our sins. And as the scriptures so aptly say, by his stripes we are healed. Well, today we do come to the crucifixion. And the Bible tells us that Jesus was crucified in a place that's called the place of a skull. The Hebrew name for that is Golgotha. The word skull that we read in our King James Bible is actually from the Greek word cranian. It's the same word from which we get the English word cranium. And most often we refer to the place where Jesus was crucified as Calvary. And actually Calvary is just another translation of that very same word. So all of these things mean exactly the same thing. The place where Jesus died is described as the place of a skull. Now, today we're going to think about what kind of place that was. And perhaps as we look at Calvary this morning, I hope that you will be able to find that Calvary or the place of a skull is a place for you as well. Let's please stand as we read God's word today. We're going to begin with the 17th verse of John chapter 19. John 19 verse number 17. And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin, three languages that this inscription was written in, Hebrew, the language of religion, Greek, the religion of philosophy, and Latin, the language of government. Verse 21, then said the chief priest of the Jews to Pilate, write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, 
and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said therefore among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. And that prophecy of Scripture is actually in Psalm 22, verse number 18, written 1,000 years before Christ died. Verse number 25, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, and her name is not given here, but her name is Salome, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, Behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple, and that's speaking of John, that disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we ask you that you might bless the reading of your word. Lord, help us as we look at the cross today, the place of a skull, that we might see ourselves there. Lord, we were in the crowd that day that crucified you. And I ask you, Lord, you might speak to our hearts this morning as we listen to this sermon, as I preach. And Lord, just uh, give the words that need to be said. And may you draw some lost sinner to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Many of you have probably seen pictures of the place where they say that Jesus was crucified. There's a landmark in Jerusalem that is a hill that very much bears the resemblance of a skull. Don't if you'd show me that. I don't know how well you can see this. But in this hill that they think where Jesus was crucified, you can probably just little see little eye sockets here, a nose, and then the head, of course, a rounded hill that looks like a man's head. And many people envision that that is a place that looks like a skull. And that's the place where they believe that Jesus may have been crucified. Now, faces will often show up in some very odd places. Perhaps some of you may know that the actor Paul Newman Uh, contributes to a lot of different charities. And the means by which he funds those charities is by the companies that he owns. And Paul Newman owns one particular company called Newman's Own. You've probably seen his products on on the shelves at the grocery store. But they make different things like salad dressings and popcorn salsas. And one particular thing that he makes is fruit juices. And on those products, on the label, you'll always see Paul Newman's smiling face. One of the charities that's supported by Paul Newman is a kid's camp called the Hole in the Wall Gang Camp. And this is a camp where children are able to go free of charge, uh, children that have terminally, or are terminally ill with, with things like cancer, and they can go to this, this camp free of charge. Well, one time Paul Newman was at one of these kids' camps, and he sat down at a picnic table beside one of the little boys, and this little boy was terminally ill. And the little boy had no idea who Paul Newman was. And so he looked at Paul Newman and and he said, who are you? Well, Paul Newman reached over and he grabbed a carton of fruit juice and he poured his this little boy, a glass of that fruit juice. Then he poured himself a glass of fruit juice. Then he turned the carton around and he said, this is who I am. 
And the little boy got wide-eyed and looked at him and said, Mister, are you lost or something? Well, today I want us to, to think about faces, the faces that you could see at Calvary if you were there when Jesus died. Now, I'm not talking about this impression that we see in that hillside, but rather I want us to look at the faces of the people who were in the place of a skull. And what kind of place was that? And who were the people that were there present at the cross when Jesus died? Well, first I would like us to look at and say that this is a place for guilty thieves. John doesn't tell us too much about the two men that were crucified with Jesus. He only says in verse number 18 that there were two men. They were one on either side of Jesus, and Jesus was hanging on that middle cross. Matthew and Mark both tell us that these men were thieves. And also in the book of Luke, we can read there and find out that these two thieves carried on a conversation with Jesus while all three of them were hanging together, suffering on those crosses. And in the beginning of this conversation, these two men that hung there with Jesus mocked him just like the rest of the crowd did. They spoke against Jesus. But then there was one of those thieves that changed his mind and he changed his approach toward Jesus. Now, when the one thief said, well, if you are the Christ, then come down from the cross and save us. The other one looked at him and he said, what are you saying here? He says, this this man has done nothing wrong. Don't you fear God? This man has committed no wrong. And here we are dying justly for what we have done. But this man does not deserve to be punished. And when the thief said that, he made a profession of faith. He looked into the face of another man who was also hanging on this cross, a man that was bloody, he was beaten, he was bleeding and he was dying. And he looked into the face of that man and he called him Lord. Now that's a very amazing statement. He called him Lord. Can you imagine him doing that? But he said to him, he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that's when Jesus spoke to him those words, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. I believe that everyone in the room today can identify with one of those two thieves that was hanging on the cross. And you will approach God in one of two different ways. I want you to look at the first way that you can approach God. You may approach God with selfish fear. And as we look at this first thief, we we wonder what is it that motivated this man Well, as we think about it, we know he was motivated by the fact that he wanted to save his skin. Here was a man dying on a cross. He didn't want to die there. And so he cried out to Jesus, if you are the Christ. And he prefaced his statement with if. If you are the Christ, then save me. And you know, that's the same kind of if that a soldier speaks when he's in a foxhole. He says, if there is a God up there, then please help me out of this mess. It's the same kind of if that a person may may speak when he's in a hospital bed, lying there, dying. Doesn't know the day that he's going to die, but he's pleading out, if there is a God up there, then please save me. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to die. And so there are many people who cry out in selfish fear. And as they cry out, they're not really trusting in the power of Christ to save them. They're just thinking, I don't want to die. I don't want to burn in hell forever. And they really never have any intention of receiving Jesus Christ into their lives. They're only worried about what happens of death. And so they begin to call on God. God, if you're up there, if there really is a Savior, if there really is a place called hell, then God, I want you to save me from that place. And friend, I want to tell you today that you will never reach God with the wrong approach. 
Real faith never comes to God and says if. And if selfish fear is the motive, then your approach to God is completely wrong. But there is another approach because this other thief shows us the other approach in which you may come to God. You may approach God with sincere faith. This second thief spoke to Jesus in faith and his example is a great one of sincere faith. Here's a man who realizes he doesn't have long to live. He has no hope. He looked over into the face of another man there hanging on a cross who's bleeding and dying. That man is bruised. He's broken. His face has been beat into an unrecognizable mess. His body has been torn by the cat of nine tails. He's there bleeding. He's dying. His hands and his feet are nailed. They're pierced. He has a crown of thorn that's placed of thorns placed upon his head in mockery of him. And this thief looks at that man. He looks at Jesus. And there's no way that anyone could think that that man had any power at all to do anything. Here he is. He's dying the very same death that they're dying. And yet this man looks into the face of Jesus and he called him Lord. He never said if. He called him Lord. And the Bible tells us, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He said, Lord, remember me. Lord, remember me. I believe that you have a future existence. I believe that you have a kingdom, Lord. And so remember me when you come into that kingdom. Now, folks, there is an amazing statement of sincere faith. We don't see any ifs in what he says. And we think about this. Why did this man call upon the Lord? What caused him to do that? Why is there one thief who calls upon Jesus and recognizes him as his Lord, and yet there's another thief there that shows no response? He came in the wrong way or used the incorrect response. Why is that? Why is there a difference between those two men? And the only conclusion that we could come to, that though this one man was pierced in his hands and his feet, yet there was the Holy Spirit of God who took the sword of the Spirit and pierced his heart and made him realize who Jesus really was. And so he came to Jesus, and he says to him, I'm guilty, I am a sinner, save me, Lord. And that was real sincere faith. Now today, you might be like that first thief. You may be thinking this morning, well, I got a bad deal. Life has dealt me a bad hand. Things are going wrong in my life. Life is terrible. And I'm just wondering, why me? Why does it happen to me? Why me, God? Or you might approach God in sincere faith. And you may come to him today and you say, I'm guilty. I am a sinner. I've failed in my life. I don't deserve anything but death. I need Jesus. I need you to save me from my sins. And I can promise you this morning that if you come to Jesus in that way, that this very day, Jesus will tell you that you can have life. You must approach him with sincere faith. Now, some people have called on God and that call is a selfish fear. They say, I'm not too sure about you, God. I'm not too sure about what you can do. But if you can help me, then I sure do need your help. And that's the wrong kind of approach. Real faith never says if. Real faith never has any fear. True faith comes to God and he says, you're Lord. He says to Jesus, you have a kingdom. I want you to save me from my sins. And so you have to approach Jesus in the right way. Today, I want to tell you that the place of the skull was a place for guilty thieves, but it was also a place for guilty sinners. It's a place where people can come to Jesus Christ, where they can be saved from their sins. And Jesus will save you from your sins if you come to him in sincere faith. 
Now, I want you also to notice today that there's someone else there because this was also a place for greedy soldiers. There were also soldiers in that place, and they were gambling for the possessions of Jesus. Now, if you'll look again, please, at verses 23 and 24, it says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now here we see these soldiers. They're grabbing for all that they could get. But there was one piece of Jesus' clothing that they couldn't divide, and so they decided they would gamble among themselves for that one article of clothing. Now, a soldier that was on a crucifixion detail had a terrible job. I mean, this was a rough job. Think about the the blood and the gore that that person must have seen. And so in order to encourage these soldiers to take a detail like that, what they would promise them was that they could have the possessions of the one who was crucified. Now, that's one of the fringe benefits, if you want to put it that way, of being on that crucifixion detail. And so they let these soldiers claim the possessions of the one who was crucified there, and that's what these soldiers were doing. They were dividing up all these different things that Jesus owned. Well, with Jesus, they didn't get very much, did they? Because when the king of the universe, the one who owned it all, came down to the day of his death, he'd already given everything up. He'd already given everything away. In fact, when he came into this world, he gave everything up in order to come to die for our sins. And so when Jesus came down to the day of his death, he didn't have anything but the clothes that he was wearing. And so these soldiers began to divide up what Jesus owned. One of them uh, got the, probably the, the, the sandals that he wore. One of them got the headdress. Another got the wide belt or the, and, and another the outer garment that he was wearing. But there was one more garment that they couldn't divide up. This was a, a, an undergarment. And actually, this was the garment that was, that was closest to the body. It was woven without a seam. And very often, mothers would, woo, would, would weave these kind of garments for their children. But it had no seam on it. And so the soldiers could not divide that up. And so rather than dividing it, they decided they're going to cast lots for it. They're going to gamble for this. So one soldier will get this entire garment. Now, remember, here's Jesus. He has nothing. Jesus himself said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but I don't even have a place where I can lay my head. Jesus had nothing. Jesus didn't fight or didn't have all the toys that people are fighting over today. None of that. All he had were his clothes. And when they had divided all these things among themselves, they came down to that one last garment that he was wearing, and there was no way to divide it, and so they began to gamble over it. Now, I want to ask you two questions in regard to what these soldiers were doing. And the first question is, do you receive benefits with no gratitude? These soldiers were taking from Jesus. And do you know that there are a lot of people that are taking things from Jesus today and they never thank him for their blessings? I mean, we've been given so much from God, haven't we? God supplies all that we need and people just do not stop to thank God for what they have. And so when you ask people, where did you get that new car that you drive? Where did you get that new house that you live in? And they'll say, well, I earned that. That's mine. I worked for that. I accumulated all of these things. But do you remember what God says in the book of Deuteronomy? 
He said, And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of my hand hath gotten me this wealth, but thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. So did you really do that on your own? Did you get it on your own? Did you know God could have changed things? God could have made it all different. God could have made it so that you don't have a nickel or two pennies to rub together. God's the one who gives us the power to work. He supplies everything that we have. But do we thank God? What about the health that we have? What about the very air that we breathe? Friends, God could snuff out your life like that if you wanted to, right at this very moment. And we just don't thank God. Everything that we have in life comes from God. James said every good gift and every perfect gift comes from God. And nobody ever stops to thank God from where all of those things came. Now what you do here all of the time is people complaining against God. People complain about what God does. How could there be a God in heaven who would let a little child get sick? How could there be a God in heaven who would allow something like 9-11 to take place? How does God allow things like that? And do you know the same person who complains against God for all those types of things? He'll sit down at a meal and he'll dig into that meal like a pen full of hogs at the trough. And he'll eat and never stop to thank God for his food. So I want to ask you today, are you like those soldiers? Are you saying, give me, give me, give me all the time? Many people are like that. They never stop in gratitude to thank God for what they have. But I want to ask you a second question here. And that is, are you gambling with eternity? Now, I'm going to interject something in here into the sermon. I want to talk about gambling for just a moment. And I just want to tell you, if you gamble, that's stupid. If you're a gambler and you spend time at a casino, or you like to play poker, or even if you buy those lottery tickets, then you could just stamp your forehead with a big sign that says stupid. You know what the... the, what the, what the motto of the lottery is. Everybody knows that, don't you? If, if you don't play, you can't win. Do you think that they would get you if they had a motto that said, if you don't play, you can't lose? Because how is the lottery funded? It's funded with losers, folks. So you can just stamp a big sign on your forehead, loser. Thank God I'm a loser. Let me tell you, Christian, if, if you spend God's money gambling, then shame on you. And think about it, all of it comes from God anyway, doesn't it? It all belongs to God. Now, I could get a political soapbox today, and I could stand up there, and I could preach about this. I could preach about how our country is going to the dogs because we are so foolish to think that we can fund our public works with legalized gambling. That's pure stupidity. You're a fool if you gamble away God's money. But I want to talk to you about something that's far more important than that. Something more important and more valuable than money. And people are gambling with it all the time. And it's called eternity. People are gambling with their souls. They're gambling with eternity. And they don't realize there's a God that we're going to have to meet. Now, if you think that your chances of winning the lottery are slim, then you just think about your chances of getting to heaven without Jesus. Think about that chance. And you know what it is? Jesus already told us the possibility of getting to heaven without him is zero. There is no chance. You can't win that one. Jesus said there's only one way that people come to the Father, and that's by him. You've got to go straight through Jesus Christ. But you know, I meet people all the time who say that when you ask them, are you going to go to heaven when you die? And they'll say something like, well, I'll take my chances. 
I mean, I, I've been a pretty good person. I, I, I've lived a pretty good life. I haven't done too many bad things. And so, yeah, I think so. I, I think the chances are pretty good that I'm going to go to heaven. Well, if you think it's stupid to take your hard-earned money and to gamble that, it is far more stupid. It, there's nothing compared to the stupidity of gambling with your eternal soul. Nothing is as foolish as that. There's only one thing that's guaranteed about it. You will lose. Albert Einstein said that there's a chief difference between genius and stupidity. You know what he said the chief difference is? He said, there's no limits to stupidity. And that's true, isn't it? There is no limits to the stupidity that people go to. But I want to tell you something, folks. There's a God that we're going to meet. There's a God that we're going to stand before. And you can't take your chances about how you're going to meet him. Don't take a chance with eternity. And while I'm talking about this, I might as well talk about other people who talk about chances. You know, there's some preachers who say, well, I preach the gospel in order to give people a chance to be saved. And do you know that's as stupid as the person who thinks they can get to heaven without Jesus? If this thing is all about chance, then none of us has a chance to get to heaven. I don't preach the gospel to give people a chance to be saved. I preach the gospel so they can be saved, so they will be saved by believing in Jesus Christ. And you better understand this. If God didn't have your eye, his eye on you from the very beginning, then you would never have a chance of being saved, and none of us would. There's no chance for anyone. God doesn't give us chances to be saved. He says, come to me, and you can be saved. So the place of the skull is a place for guilty thieves, and it's a place for greedy soldiers. But I also want you to notice that it's also a place for grieving followers. There were many people who mocked Jesus on that day. There were lots of people who were there, but there were also some people who were heartbroken because Jesus was on that cross. And Jesus knew that they were heartbroken. He felt that anguish. And even while he was dying himself, when he had this huge problem himself of being nailed to a cross, yet Jesus still had the time to be a son. He was his mother's son. And he looked upon his mother with compassion as she stood there. In John chapter 19, verse 25, it says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then he saith to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. Now at that very moment, Mary realized a prophecy that had been given many years before. Over 30 years prior to this time before, Mary took her little boy, her infant boy Jesus, into the temple to dedicate him to the Lord. And when she went into the temple, there was a man, Simeon, who was there. He saw Jesus and he spoke to Mary. This is what he said. Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Can you imagine how Mary must have felt watching her son die? You know, it's a, it would be a bad thing to lose a rebellious child. It'd be a bad thing to lose a mean child. That, that'd be terrible for that to happen. But can you imagine if your son was perfect? Can you imagine if your son had never done anything wrong? If he was the perfect child his whole life? Can you imagine losing a son like that? And Mary was sorrowful over it. 
The relatives were sorry over the death of Jesus Christ. Friends, as they stood there, they cried as Jesus was being crucified. And even today, when you talk about the cross of Christ in certain ways, there are tears that come to people's eyes. They think about that, the awful suffering and the anguish that Jesus went through. And they begin to think about what he did, and people cry over that. Let me ask you two more questions in regard to this. First, I want to ask you, have you simply felt sadness? Are you saddened by this? And it's not enough just to be sad. We're saddened when other people die, aren't we? People can sit and watch movies on television or go to the theater, and while they're watching there when the hero dies, you'll see people coming out of the theater with tears coming out of their eyes. People get sad when somebody dies. I think about when people gave their lives for our country, our soldiers, they gave their lives. And, and I can hear America the Beautiful being sung. And as I think about soldiers who gave their lives for our freedom, I can get a tear in my eye when I think about that. When I think about a missionary who goes on to a foreign field and he gives his life there, and if, if someone kills him for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, we sorrow over that. Oh, we're sad when somebody who's involved in a noble cause dies. But I want to tell you something. It's not enough just to be sad over the death of Jesus Christ. And so the question is, not just have you merely felt sadness, but there's a more important question. Have you trusted the sacrifice? Have you trusted what Jesus did there? The important question is, do you believe in the sacrifice of Christ? You see, you've got to move beyond all of those feelings that he's just a good man who's dying for a worthy cause. You've got to get over the feeling of just looking at his mother Mary and the sorrow that she experienced and the, and the sorrow of the friends as they stood there watching Jesus die. It's not enough just to feel sorry for him. What you need to do is to trust in the sacrifice. He was a sinless sacrifice of God. Oh, it's sad, that's true. But he was taking our sins there. He was our substitute. And if you'll trust him today, I promise you, Jesus took your sins away. So the place of the skull is a place where pardon for our sins was obtained. Trust him. Trust him. And you can be saved from that awful punishment of hell. But then I want to show you finally another place. The place that this really was. Because this was a place for a gracious Savior. There were a lot of things that were going on at the cross. There were a lot of people at the cross. But none of those people is the focus of what really happened there. The place of the skull was the place for a gracious Savior. Jesus, the God-man, was on that cross. Now, if you look into the faces of those that were at Calvary that day, the ones that you focus on are not the faces that are in the crowd. I don't want you to focus on two guilty thieves who gambled over the clothing of Jesus. Don't think about his mother, Mary, and all the friends that stood there grieving over his death. And don't even think about that face that you might envision in those rocks there and imagine what that might be like. That's not the important thing. The focus of Calvary is Jesus Christ. You need to look into the face of Jesus because it was the place for a gracious Savior. Now, John said in the first chapter of this book that Jesus was full of grace and truth. In his life, Jesus was was truth. He was truth incarnate. Everything that he did was truthful. 
But do you know this? It's only in the death of Jesus Christ that we really see God's grace. He was truth in life, but Jesus was all about grace in his death. Now, the place of the skull portrays for us two very contrasting pictures. The first picture shows us the worst example of man's wickedness. The very worst example of man's wickedness. Now, we never see man more at his worst than at the crucifixion of Jesus. Crucifixion was a horrible death. There was no compassion on him as he hung there. We just read it a moment ago that even when he thirsted, when he cried out in thirst, that what did they do? They handed him cheap vinegar to drink. They gave that to him. They weren't interested in relieving his thirst. We've already been through, as we've studied this, how that they spat upon Jesus, how they mocked him. We've talked about how they beat him in the face with sticks. We've talked about, of course, how they beat his back with that cat of nine tails. We talked about how they took those spikes and they drove them into his hands and his feet. We've talked about how they took the crown of thorns and they pressed it down into the brow of Jesus. Oh, the pain and the anguish that must have been associated with that. There on the cross of Calvary, we see what men did to him. We see men at their very worst, the worst example of wickedness. And I want to advise you today that you can see yourself there. You can see yourself there. You can see your own wickedness there. We would have done the very same thing that those people did. And you know how I know that? Because every day we sin against God. And do you know what it was that put Jesus on the cross? It was sin. It was sin. And so every one of us is guilty of the death of Jesus Christ. We put him there. We drove the nails. We did all these despicable, horrible things to Jesus. And here we find the worst example of even our own wickedness. But there's something else that you see at the cross. You also see the best example of God's grace. God's grace was on display in that beaten, bruised, bloody body of Jesus Christ. God's grace was on display as that blood flowed freely down from his face, as it flowed out of his hands and out of his feet, as the blood trickled down from that cross. God's grace was on display. We could never be good enough for that. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn that. And I want to tell you something, folks. You can't earn this. You can't earn it. We could all stop trying to be good enough to earn our salvation because God says that you will never earn what Jesus paid at the cross. He'll never accept what you have in place of what Jesus did on that cross. You have to trust him. The Bible tells us, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, that's grace. That's what the cross is about. You can't earn it because this is not for sale. Not for any price. It's not for sale. Jesus paid it all. And I want to advise you today that the only thing left for you to do is to receive the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ. Recognize this, that your sin put Jesus on that cross. Recognize the sin and disgrace that Jesus went through, all that you might receive a full, free pardon from your sins. And that's all that a person needs to do today is to receive that pardon. So Calvary is a place of a skull. Do you see yourself in that crowd? Can you look there and see your face among all those people? 
All of us were there. As I said, all of us had a part of his death. But I want to ask you more importantly than seeing your own face there. I want to know if you're looking into the face of Jesus Christ today. And I want to know, do you see the grace of God? Do you see the grace of God poured out on old, guilty, vile, defiled sinners such as we are? Calvary, the place of the skull, was the place for a gracious Savior. Do you see it? Do you see the mercy, the love, the compassion, and the free grace of Jesus Christ and God the Father? That's what Calvary is. All you need to do today is believe it and receive it. At the place of the skull, we find a place for our gracious Savior. Would you pray with me, please? Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you, we are so amazed and overwhelmed and awed that Jesus went to the cross for us. Heavenly Father, I ask you today that you might speak to the heart of some person in this room, that they might realize the the vileness and the guilt of their sins, that they might understand that there is no pardon for sin aside from what Jesus did on that cross. Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. I ask you, Lord, that you might open the eyes of some sinner today to receive this full pardon that has been obtained at the cross of Calvary. Lord, I pray for our people today, for those that are saved, that we might remember that cross that we might tell others that the pardon is available for them as well. And Lord, we just ask you might speak to everyone here in this congregation today. May we learn something from the vision that we see in the faces, in the face of Jesus Christ on that cross. And we give you the praise and the honor and the glory for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.